it's time for the unfair advantage sessions where I get the opportunity to speak to some of the world's top leaders in the digital, social, and research technology space. And my name is Calvin Yonk. I'm the MD of UNO. And uh, these interviews are intended to deep, deep dive into the lives, the careers that guided uh, these tech leaders to their successes and with the goal of uncovering what the unfair advantage is. And today I'm extremely honored and, um, um, and pleased to have the highly respected and influential leader of Ad Dynamo and Blue Robot, uh, Sean Riley, with me today. Welcome, Sean. Good to have you. Hi, Kelvin. Thanks for having me. No, awesome. Uh, so, I mean, let's start right at the beginning. Uh, you know, the trend I, I see in a, in a lot of these discussions is uh, you know, with some of the entrepreneurs that we've spoken to is they've started young, doing something in school or maybe even just after school, which seemed to put them in that correct frame of mind to start something later. And was that the same with you? Yeah, absolutely. I, th I would call myself an entrepreneur from a young age. Um, beginning at um, the age of about 11, I had a, a market in Belleville. I would steal pots and pans from inside my mom's cupboards and sell them. And obviously a massive profit because I had no cost of stock. <laughs> and eventually I, I matured and I, I started uh, sourcing wholesale products and selling them at the market. I washed teachers' cars at school uh, through Varsity. I actually, uh, believe it or not, I was a runner back at Varsity and I ran the university's um, athletics bar um, and, uh, you know, sort of would train and then open the bar after training for, for everyone else. And, yeah, so very much, very much in my blood and um, like to think of myself as having a lot of hustle from a young age. Yeah, amazing. I, and so, so you went to, to Varsity. Where did you go to Varsity? Stellenbosch. Stellenbosch, right. And then you went to the UK. Was it straight after that, right? That's, that's right, yes. Yeah. So what was, what was that experience like for you? How did that kind of start forging the, the, the seedlings of what happened next? Yeah, I think um, so when I first arrived in London, um, I guess my my sort of um, self-esteem or belief in myself was, you know, um, you know, I just kind of thought that everyone would be better than me. So my first few jobs were really dodgy. I, um, I, I worked on a tip. I worked at a place called Tip Top Turf doing roll on lawn, um, you know, packing roll on lawn on the back of tractors. Um, and uh, was a temp for office angels, handing out faxes in alphabetical order on people's desks. And uh, I actually, I actually had a, <laughs> I had a bit of a break. I was, um, I worked at Bank Parabar on Oxford Street, and my my job literally was to take old furniture, and they would have skips out on Oxford Street, and I would take this old furniture, throw it in the skip, and then crush it with a big pole so that we could get more old furniture into the skip. And um, I reported into this secretary and she wrote me a fantastic letter of reference without any reference to my actual job. She just, you know, on the bank parable letterhead said I was a team player. I was, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I took on any task with utmost diligence. And I ended up getting a, getting a break at uh, Credit Suisse in, in derivatives. And uh, in fact, that's, uh, that sort of really, uh, that boss of mine there became one of my very best friends and remains a, a great friend today. Amazing. What, what did you do at Credit Suisse? So Credit Suisse uh, was in operations. So I, um, I did recons for uh, futures and options trades. And then along the way, I started building tactical applications for the bank um, in parallel to, to that role as well. Um, coding, 
but is I mean is yeah coding? yeah coding yeah, yeah I was okay. co I was coding and probably maybe a bit of context there we had some some really big issues and uh, for those that are familiar with um, you know with futures and options you know they you know we have variation margin which um, you know which you know you, you might you might not reconcile you might be out by one pound today but that one pound could actually mean that you're out by a billion. And uh, so we had some really big risks uh, that we were trying to grapple with. And we had a tactical applications team that were wanting to put a project in place. And they were talking about nine to 12 months delivery. And we were kind of, no, we have this problem right now. So I wrote code to, to solve the problem. And, uh, you know, and obviously took a lot of flack and a lot of criticism about the quality of my code and so on. But the, but the reality is that it worked and uh, the bank ended up using that code for for close to twenty years. So I was really? I was quite proud of having done that. Wow! I I, I had a I had a experience. I, I worked at the Carphone Warehouse in London as my one of my first big jobs. And I think I my coding was that bad that I brought down their billing system for two days, um, and then had to <laughs> had to bring in the big guns to kind of <laughs> <laughs> somehow rebuild whatever they were they had in place. Uh, that was a that was a crazy experience. So so wow. um, I, I mean I guess it was after this that you started building your own stuff. Is that did you I mean after that experience you ended up coming back to USA and and uh, what led you to do that? You know was there some kind of confidence? Yeah. I guess that you were able to to build on coming out of that corporate space. So actually um, the catalyst for me leaving uh, leaving the bank was actually that uh, I'd built a, a fuzzy logic trading model. Uh, which I guess you could call Fuzzy Logic the precursor to AI today. And uh, I remember being referred into a, one of the directors at the bank and I walked in and I was 30 seconds into my pitch and he interrupted me and said, sorry, do you have a PhD in maths? And I said, no, I don't. He said, so I only deal with people. He said, I only deal with people with PhDs. Um, and he literally, he didn't want to hear the idea. And I said to him, but, you know, fuzzy logic isn't even taught at varsity at any universities right now. Um, you know, I've, you know, self-taught myself this, I've built a model that I believe works. He didn't want to hear about it. So for me, it was, um, that was the catalyst to say, let me go back to South Africa, the, the land of opportunity. And, um, yeah, and that was my sort of, um, that, that's what led me to, to move, to move on. And yes, when I got to SA, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. And I ended up um, very quickly falling into uh, building a share trading, a share trading platform. How long did that take? What was the, that, that journey? Because if that was the first foray into this, um, was it successful? Yeah, so um, I like to think so. So we, um, it, it, was, it was quite a journey. Obviously, building an online uh, share trading platform in 98 was pretty uh, leading edge back then. Uh, so it was, you know, it was really interesting, even just, you know, the, the web languages we used um, don't exist today anymore. They were um, quite hard to, to scale up on, but uh, it was quite a, it was quite a journey. And, you know, also, of course, um, along that way, license that tech to E-Trade in the US and, um, you know, being exposed to Silicon Valley at, a, at an early age was, was quite something and seeing how they operated. Um, and possibly Kelvin, there's actually one story I want to share that, um, that, uh, you know, for the more technical people, they might in, enjoy it. But okay. one thing we were really proud of was that the JSC was still coming to terms with the notion of online trading. And so, uh, we had an API for live market data, but we actually weren't allowed to, uh, inject a trade into the market, uh, automatically. 
So the rule initially was that there had to be an air gap. There had to be a trader who worked through a JETS terminal, the JC's trading terminals, and he had to press a button to send that trade to market. So obviously, like we were concerned that there could just be typing errors, also um, speed, you know, the whole, you know, benefit, one of the big benefits of online trading is that when you press that button, the trade takes place. So we actually um, literally had a trader, we had a broker sitting outside our server room with a serial cable running from one server all the way through the wall to his jet terminal. And we had analyzed the jet terminal and built a keystroke emulation that, uh, so when a trade came through on the server, it emulated the correct sequence of keystrokes to populate the trade on his screen. And he just sat there and pressed enter as they came through. <laughs> what a job. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, that, that was um, your first foray into it successful. Um, and then you uh, founded intelligence, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. What, what, what was that business about? What did you guys do? So what, what actually had happened is my, my, my business that had built the, the share trading platform, we had sold to, um, to a listed company at the time called eData. Uh, so at a very young age, thought that I was going to be ridiculously rich. Unfortunately, they defaulted um, immediately and their business, was, their business kind of um, started to collapse around them quite quickly. And we had built this team of 25 developers. Back then to have 25 developers, um, you know, was, was a pretty big thing. We had had to train them up internally. So, um, you know, we decided to take the business back and I was in a fortunate position to be introduced to GT Ferreira, our first ran bank. And um, yeah, he wrote me a check on a handshake uh, over a first introduction at a meeting and the rest is history. And intelligence was born. And that was, and, and you ran that for 10 years, something, something like 10 years, almost a decade, right? Yes. What would you say were some of the main learnings from that, that, that led you to, you know, later success in the following decade? Right. So I guess with, uh, with a shareholder like GT, you know, we were, we had to strike the balance between, um, you know, he wasn't an investor interested in a healthy 10% annual return. He, his kind of mandate was go out and build the, build something big. And, uh, but at the same time, you know, you, we had to first of all find the balance between being brave enough to build something big, but also being in a position to pay our, pay our own bills so that we weren't going back every day for a handout to, to cover costs. So uh, that was, first of all, that was interesting for us. I think the journey of um, straddling innovation, but also just common business sense and, um, you know, building a, you know, you can, that yes, we, 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 there are all these fantastic stories about uh, businesses that build that um, moon landing product. But, uh, you know, the reality is that uh, sometimes, you know, a little bit of luck is needed to do that. And also, you know, being in a position to pay salaries, to build a sustainable business is equally important. So I think we, we, we learned to strike that balance. We, we had a few big successes. We had many failures. So you asked about, you know, lessons from there. Probably my biggest my biggest lesson on product development is something I call the cup holder trap. And, um, you know, you would take a, we had a piece of project management uh, software called Wonder, and we would take this into clients and present it. And they would say, wow, if it, if it could do this as well, that would be quite interesting. And then obviously I'm a developer, you know, our business is technical. So I would run off and literally have it built by the end of the day and then go back to them, but still not make a sale. And so we, what, what, what happened is um, we took a look back at Wanda and we had eventually, it was this amalgamation of knowledge management, 
project management, performance management, balance scorecard for business strategy. It was really quite um, quite a complicated product and it was a very complicated narrative as well when you're trying to pitch it to a client. And what we actually did is we we took all these cup holders that we had built to try close sales and we'd realized that just bolting on more features didn't, didn't you have to solve one real need particularly well. And um, if you do that, you uh, clients will always overlook the, the nice to haves. And I mean, Apple's first iPhone is a great example of um, being revolutionary, but also being very basic and compared to other phones out there, you couldn't copy and paste, you couldn't send an MMS. And so what we actually did with Wanda, just out of it to close that story for you, we, we actually stripped, we, we hid a lot of the features and we took one product and we broke it up into four products. And we would go and we would sell a knowledge management solution and a project management solution. And inevitably after installing it, the client would say, I wish I could do this. We say, well, actually it can, let us just switch that on for you. And uh, so, you know, so actually simplifying the product um, led to success. And that's, you know, definitely something we've seen. Um, I think too many, you know, too many sort of, you know, product development businesses out there believe that features will, features will give them the win. And um, we've just learned the hard way that you have to do what you set out to do extremely well. And the features are, are just the natural evolution, but not, I don't think they, I don't believe that they drive success. One of my early mentors kept saying that if you try and sell everything, you sell nothing. So you're right. Yes. Focus, I think, is so is so vital. So so I mean, you, you, you know, you, you guys are running you're running the business. It's ten years in. Um, suddenly it's 2009. Everyone's kind of busy finding their feet as to how to effectively monetize not only this digital space but but maybe even more so the social media space. And then you you start at Dynamo. Is that right? Around about 2009. That's right. That's right. Yes. So what, yeah. so what was what was the market like at that point? You know, in terms of competition influences or interest from clients that kind of thing right so yeah we um you know we had over the sort of in the three years lead up to 2009 built quite a big digital uh, marketing capability but the reality back then was that um you know your your options uh, if you were looking to promote brands online were google um facebook and then you know msn but um, essentially it was Google and, uh, and they, were the, they were the dominant option. And we kind of you know, identified an opportunity to create a, a bit more choice and a bit of competition in the market. And so that led us to, to launch at Dynamo as a contextual ad network that we, we built from scratch. And yeah, that was, a, um, that, that was the beginning of at Dynamo. Yeah, and, and then, uh... I mean, I assume, you know, you guys, you guys are historically known as being the, the Twitter partners in Africa. And, and I assume that signing Twitter on as a partner must have been a massive inflection point um, for the company. How did that even come about? Did you know someone there? Did they come to you? What, what's the story there? Yeah, so, um, we had, so we had been running our ad network since 2009. We had built some real scale. So the ad network was reaching 58 million unique users a day. So we're really proud of that. We're doing some innovative things. Um, we were we actually issued our own Visa debit card to bloggers, so that uh, we could actually, you know, back then, if you were a blogger with Google, you would essentially get your money 180 days later because they were still posting checks. And uh, you know, to be in a position mm -hmm. where we could, uh, you know, just top up your card on the first day of every month, uh, actually led to just out of interest, uh, Google ended up being our biggest advertiser at, 
by the end, by 2013, Google was buying and reselling 92% of our traffic. Um, <laughs> so we had begun, we had started off to compete with them and uh, they ended up being our, our biggest clients. But yes, we had, um, in 2013, we had actually been selling Twitter non-exclusively alongside a few, you know, so we had a few premium publishers out there. Twitter was one of them. So we were selling them alongside about seven other resellers in South Africa. And uh, we'd actually, I'd actually had a call with uh, a lady at Twitter who, um, where I just explored the opportunity to become the official reseller in the market and uh, heard nothing back, but had a good conversation. And then literally at the end of 20, uh, uh, at the end of 2013, um, got a call from an exec, flew in the next day. We spent two days and a week later we were appointed as their reseller and, um, we, we, we got quite lucky because they were about to make a decision, um, you know, to go with somebody else that I, and fortunately this, this person at Twitter had was a notorious meticulous note keeper. And she had pulled out her conversation and said, you have to also chat to these guys. And yeah, they, um, obviously Twitter, um, you know, Twitter was life changing for us. It led us to actually closing down our ad network reluctantly, but we just very quickly made a call on return on effort. It was much yeah. easier to to sell Twitter than to um, sell an ad network that competed with Google. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and then, you know, since then you've added a whole host of premium partners to that to that list. Which ones? Which ones have they been? Uh, so Verizon Media, which uh, you know is probably the least known in terms of brand, but is really exciting because it, it delivers real performance. And uh, and then Spotify as well as Snapchat. Right. I mean, those are, those are massive, massive brands. And I presume, uh, you know, it's easier once you've proven to these kind of guys that, you know, the work you've done with someone like a Twitter um, worked. So, so you could almost hopefully walk in, walk through the door and you know, kind of yeah. sign them up at will. Uh, so yeah. but then in, in 20, 2016, uh, you, you started another company, Blue Robot, right? How, how come? Yes. You know, yeah, what was the point uh, of that? So so that was around the time that we uh, we made the call to uh, disconnect our ad network, but we still had technical capability. Um, and we were seeing, so initially Blue Robot started with a very strong Twitter focus. So we were seeing brands around the world doing very interesting things with Twitter's APIs. But in South Africa, especially, or in across all of Africa, um, you know, brands sort of liked what they were seeing, but they, no brand is gonna experiment with six weeks of dev for a creative idea, you know, it's just too costly and it's just, you know, the risk is too high. So what we look to do is to take some experiences that, that brands were building on using Twitter's APIs and make them, um, make them instantly available to businesses. So we launched a, um, a variety of experiences such as, for example, tweet to unlock. So, you know, interacting with a tweet can unlock a, a coupon or a reward of some sort. Um, and yeah, that's, I guess, uh, with, you know, Blue Robot has evolved. We, we have a very strong messaging capability now. We're also a Facebook marketing partner. We're doing a lot of work on WhatsApp and, um, probably like the, the bigger, you know, we feel that Blue Robot's, um, journey is only beginning, but, uh, we, we're really proud of the fact that more than half the revenue comes from outside of Africa. Yeah. I, I know you mentioned to me before that. Kind of launching Blue Robot internationally taught you some hard lessons, uh, important lessons. You know, what specifically do you take out of that kind of experience? Yeah, so 
I guess, um, you know, the tough lesson for a South African business, uh, you know, setting, looking to set down roots in London, um, you know, we, we sort of were having good conversations for the first two years, but whenever we kind of got close to signing a, a big client, we um, it just didn't really go anywhere. And we started hearing a, a couple of rumors that, uh, you know, Blue Robot was great for Africa, but, you know, you know, we were kind of like hearing, hearing that uh, there was kind of concern about that African connection, which I guess is disappointing. And uh, we had also used Blue Robot as a, as a, as a way to retain talent. Um, so we, we had actually, uh, you know, migrated a lot of South Africans over to, to the UK. Uh, and we actually just after two years made a call that um, we were going to hire local. And um, yeah, that's, that changed our fortunes there. And um, Blue Robots is very much headquartered in London now. But um, unfortunately, not many South Africans are, are part of that, uh, that yeah. part of the business internationally. But that was quite tough, I guess. Um, you know, we know that culturally as well, um, you, know, uh, you, know, with, you know, there is a cultural divide. Um, you know, with British people, you know, you tend to leave every meeting thinking that you crushed it because South Africans are very direct. So we, I think, yeah. I think over here, we know that when we go to a meeting, if the client doesn't want it, they will tell us it. But um, the British don't really do that. So that, you know, that took a bit of adjusting to, you know, you know calibrating to those cultural differences. So do you remember who your first Ad Dynamo client was and, and what you did for them? That's a great question. Um, so our first, our first proper publisher was actually um, MSN um, through okay. and Habari Media back in the day was actually very mm -hmm. kind enough to, um, to make, strike a deal with us and make some of their unsold um, ad inventory available to us. And obviously as an ad network, critical to, critical to be able to have a, um, something to sell. Uh, so, you know, MS, MSN was our first publisher um, through Habari. And uh, our first advertiser, I would actually say that probably the first agency that really um, took a stab at it was probably Ogilvy. Um, you know, so Ogilvy, you know, in terms of like, you know, a big, a big name agency who led us through the door to tell our story mm. um, yeah. was Ogilvy. And um, yeah, so we were, we we're lucky to have a few brave, brave souls out there willing to try something new. What was probably what 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 was fascinating for us, of course, was that as an ad network, we we got interrogated heavily on any data we shared. So when we talked about performance and scale, agencies and brands were you know were, were very hard on you know where does this data come from? How can we trust it? And um, of course, as soon as you work with the likes of Twitter or Snap, the data is auto automatically assumed to be right. Um, what I do enjoy about about Twitter, and you will know this with uh, with what you do, is that of course. Twitter is completely public and transparent. So when we talk about conversational volume and so on, um, the brands can actually go and interrogate that data for themselves. But uh, that was probably like the biggest, also the biggest shift we noticed was that, wow, when we, you know, we're not spending 90% of the meeting uh, defending data points. Uh, we're actually getting onto the meat of, of what matters. The whole landscape seems to be changing a bit. And, and do you have any thoughts on where the next big shift in the digital media space may go. And, and this comes from, a, you know, um, even just this week, I see a lot of discussion around uh, media agencies becoming slightly less relevant as some large organizations are trying to build their own internal competencies. Um, and, and while that doesn't necessarily impact 
what you guys do. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that changing landscape? Wow, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think um, so. Something we we are we are definitely seeing is that um, there's there's starting to be a lot of um, there's a lot of overlap between different uh, different types of digital solutions out there. So you know, for example, something that we are seeing is that um, chat, the medium of chat um, is becoming a great platform for lead gen. And um, we now, you know, you can actually, you know, for example, you know, you can run place ads on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter right now that trigger a, a WhatsApp conversation um, or a Telegram conversation, um, you know. And um, so we're actually seeing the medium of chat, um, which is super intuitive for all of us. We, we live on it all day long. Um, so we're starting to see a lot of, uh, you know, crossover over there. I think with um, I think with programmatic, it's been a buzzword for a long time, but it's it's also not done well. Um, you know, we all we all have that experience where, and actually, that's where um, cookies beginning to fall away, um, and and really falling away early next year um, are going to force brands to um, to be smarter about how they target um, individuals. Um, you know that you know you know we all have that experience where you know you've just browsed something on Take a Lot and uh, you've actually checked out and bought it and 10 minutes later you're still being sold that product that you've already purchased and you know that's you know that's not great it's not a great user experience it's not great for the, the brand either and um, you know so so I definitely think there's going to be a, um, a, lot, a lot of sophistica sophistication coming into into programmatic and then of course we know that um, video is you know becoming progressively more mainstream it's got phenomenal uh, phenomenal advantages for brands uh probably my biggest frustration is that we still see big business buying media like they're buying tv or print so we still see big business allocating a million rand there and letting it burn <laughs> um you know rather than sort of re you, taking advantage of of media and monitoring performance and actually shifting budget according to what works so, I mean, that's been available to us since the advent of digital, but many businesses still don't take advantage of that freedom and, yeah. and flexibility to adjust based on, um, based on what they're seeing. Yeah, so um, I think there's, there's a lot of change. Uh, I, I would say video is an interesting one. And then to just touch on that as well, um, from the Snapchat point of view as well, we've also started to see uh, a big shift in metrics as well. So brands are starting to think. Um, so, for example, uh, we have one or two brands that um, that the only measure they're interested in is sentiment. They, they, you know, for them, how their customers feel about them is more important than clicks and impressions and click-through rates. Um, and then with Snapchat, what we what what we focus on heavily there is we actually talk about playtime. So, you know, successful um, advertiser on Snapchat in South Africa achieves between one and two years of playtime in a day uh, with the lens, which is incredible, yeah. you know? Um, and, you know, so I think, you know, it's, um, we, we all talk about clicks and everything, but time for me is a far more compelling data point. You know, you manage to engage an audience for a year. That, that's really interesting. Um, and, you know, time leads to recall, time leads to, you know, time leads to um, the consumer building a real connection with your brand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's one. It's one of the the, the things I keep hearing um, more and more. Actually, 
over the last year uh, is is this idea of salience, you know, you know, recall and salience, and 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 you're right. I think that's becoming way more important than the the volumetric stuff that uh, that we've been used to for the last couple of years. I, I guess maybe just looking back then at the last is it almost twelve years of Ad Dynamo and and Blue Robot. You know, what do you, what do you think? gave you guys that that unfair advantage in the market or as a company was it was it something cultural was it product was it you know how would you really define the, the causes of that success for dynamo i would say obviously um being brave enough to 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 being bold enough to build something that competes with a dominant a dominant player and um and then secondary to that being in a fortunate position to have brands and agencies and publishers out there who are prepared to give us a chance um, because, you know, you can be as brave as you want, but if there's no, if there's no one else brave around you, um, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's pretty pointless, but I would say that, um, and then obviously, as you mentioned, Twitter was a big inflection point for the business and not only, not only commercially, um, you know, but, but also in terms of the habits and skills we were taught. Uh, so I would say that, you know, like a lot of our DNA is uh, thanks to Twitter you know, in terms of like how we forecast, how we sell, um, taking, you know, being able to take a, um, a gifted salesperson and distill what it is they're doing successfully and make that teachable to a larger sales force. And I, um, I think that, uh, you know, South African businesses, we, we are very much relationship. Um, I remember my first couple of quarters with Twitter, they were saying, oh, you're going to miss Q2. And I said, ah, don't worry, you know, we'll do, we'll do better next quarter. And then you start to recognize that you're reporting into a business that reports to their shareholders quarterly. If you miss enough quarters, you do miss the year anyway. And, uh, and also South Africans um, are very nervous about the term sales. And at Dynamo over time has learned to embrace the concept that we are a sales business and everyone out there is sales, whether they like it or not. CEOs of big business are in sales. And uh, you know the, the sooner that you, I think, um, accept that you are in a sales role and stop trying to put lipstick on the fig, you know, like, you know, we're all, you know, people want to be biz dev or this or that, but they never want the word sales in their titles. It's very South African. And we, we've come to embrace the idea that we are in sales, we have targets and we chase them. I love that. Um, I mean, Sean, uh, very inspirational. I, I mean, I've always, I've always loved what you guys do and the, the culture that you've created and, um, the business you guys have built over the years. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's really been been great to chat to you. Um, you good? Thank you. Thanks for having me, Kelvin. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Okay. Have a good one. Cheers.